Jesus has commanded us to do what seems humanly impossible. He's given us the command to love our enemies. That means that we are to show love to those that want to harm us in some way. And he's telling us that we are to love them through our actions and through our speech and through our prayers. And I don't know about you, but last when we begin to look at this and begin to hear that command, reminded of that command as we begin to work through Luke chapter 6, uh, I think many of you, like myself, felt convicted. Felt convicted because we realize how, how, how we fail so miserably at upholding that particular command. And so as we were working through it and we felt convicted, it led us to repentance, which is a good thing. And many of us determined in our hearts and minds that this week was going to be different, that we were going to love our enemies, that we were going to show love in all kinds of ways. We were going to be good to those that hate us. We were going to bless those that curse us. We were going to pray for those who abuse us. But then something happened. Our enemies happened. They, they, they came, they confronted us, they got in our face, they said something, they, they did something with the purpose of harming us, and we find ourselves failing again. And yet, despite our failure, we're still all here, right? At least most are all here. We're still here. Jesus didn't judge us. He didn't condemn us. He, he could have on the spot. It would have been his right to be able to do so. But instead of doing that, what did he do? He extended mercy, he extended mercy and, and grace to us. He, he didn't take away our air. Good thing, right? He, he, he continued to give us water and something to drink and something to eat and clothing and shelter. He did all these things. That's what mercy is. In light of our sinning against him, he extended good things to us. And so in light of that command, here's Jesus' command for us in verse 36. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So really the whole idea of this section in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 6 is that we're going to show our love, and the way we show our love is through mercy, having mercy on those that would want to harm us. And, and we saw several ways in which that is lived out, and now we're going to see yet another way. The way that we love our neighbors and show mercy to them is in the way, is seen in evidence in the way that we judge one another. And so here's what we're going to do. It's going to be very simple today. It should be interesting uh, we're going to do two things. The, out, the, the, the text kind of breaks up into two easy parts. The first is this, the way in which we are not to judge. And then I'm going to give you three reasons why we ought not to judge. All right. Here's the first thing. The, what way or the first thing, the way in which we are not to judge. Look at verse 37, if you will. Here's a very familiar passage. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, I understand judging and condemning, I think, for the most part, to mean basically the same thing. I think, they're, they're, if anything, they're two sides of the same coin. Judging might mean that we are, that we are in essence, um, uh, judging somebody is, is really uh, looking at and determining their guilt, while, while um, condemning somebody might be determining their fate in light of that guilt. But I think, for the most part, it means the same thing. And this first part of that command, to judge not lest you be judged, is probably familiar to us all. It's familiar to us as believers in Christ, but it's also familiar to a lost and dying world. In fact, this particular passage of Scripture, this command of God, is probably more well-known and more often quoted by a lost world than any other command found in the Word of God. And I think to a large part because our, our, our culture truly believes that the worst possible sin that you can commit in this life is to judge somebody else. 
If you judge their actions or you judge their beliefs or you judge almost anything about them, even the choices that they make in their life, then you are anathema You ought to be put away with. There's nothing worse that you can do to that particular individual. And I find it a little ironic, and maybe you do too, that we live in a culture that prides itself on being non-judgmental, but I think history is going to prove it to be the most judgmental culture in human history. And it's interesting because I don't really think that a lost world is so interested in this command and upholds this command to such a high lofty place because of their desire for godliness. I think rather it might be a clever way of keeping condemnation for their ungodliness. That's what I think that is. It's a kind of a way to protect themselves or to insulate themselves. But because the world's hijacking of this particular command, it's essential that you and I understand precisely what it is that Jesus is commanding us not to do. If we don't clearly understand it, then we have no possibility of fulfilling it and obeying it. So let me tell you what I don't think. I don't think that what Jesus is doing is he's telling us, giving this broad command saying, Any, every possible type of judgment that you make in life is wrong and you ought not to do it. I don't think that's it. In other words, I don't think you sit there and you smell the milk in your refrigerator and go, ooh, that smells sour. Sorry, I shouldn't judge and start drinking. I don't think that's, I don't think that's against the law. In fact, when we look in the word of God, when we look in the word of God, we're actually commanded to make specific judgments over and over and over again. Let me give you a couple of those examples. Uh, in 1 Timothy and Titus, we see kind of a list of, of um of, uh, what do you call, of, of characteristics that you ought to look for in an elder, qualifications really for an elder or for a deacon inside of the church. And it tells it that they, they cannot be a drunkard. They can't be a lover of money. They've got to have a good reputation. And, and the idea is that you're going to look at a group of men and you're going to look to see if they meet these qualifications. The only way to do that is for you to make some type of judgment about their character and the way that they're living their lives. There's no other way to be able to do it. So in some essences, Jesus is commanding us to make particular judgments about the character and the actions of other people. Uh, Another example of that would be in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Uh, This is the command of God for the church to discipline itself when it comes to sin within the church. Uh, That means that, that if a person, the Bible says, if a person sins against you, that in love, with the hope of restoring that particular individual, you to go to them, confront them in the sin that they are committing or have committed. If they don't listen to you, the Bible says you're supposed to take one or two more to them to confront them about the same sin. If they don't listen again, bring it before the church. If they don't listen again, then you put them out and you treat them as an unbeliever. And so here's the idea. You can't do any of what God has commanded without you making some level of judgment based on the actions and whether the person is in sin or not in sin. Do you see what I'm saying? There has to be some level of judgment. So I don't think that he's saying, hey, no judging whatsoever. Just one more example, not even biblical in your own home, because I want to make sure you don't feel guilty. I want you to feel guilty for something that is not necessarily meant to feel guilty about. You hear something in the middle of the night. You hear a thump. All right, And then you get up in the middle of the night, you rush out, and there standing before you is a person dressed in all black, right, with a black mask on, uh, with, with gloves on, with a flashlight and a crowbar, and you sit there and go, stop thief! And you sit there and go, oh man, I'm sorry. 
Please forgive me. We're studying in Luke chapter 6 that we ought not to judge. And I am so sorry. I called you a thief. And just because you're in my home at 2 o'clock in the morning wearing what you're wearing with a crowbar and a flashlight, I ought not to judge. That's, that's not where it's going at all with this, okay? Instead, what, what is he talking about? I think instead Jesus is talking about the sin of judgmentalism. This is what he's commanding us not to take part in. Philip Ryken in his commentary, I think, really gets it right when he explains it this way. He says, it is a critical attitude that leads a person to make harsh conclusions about someone else's motives. He or she is always so quick to criticize, usually putting things in the worst possible light, but slow to forgive. This is that that critical, just angry, always thinking the worst about everything that somebody says or somebody does. And here's the thing. Many times it's not even an actual sin that we would find in the word of God. The person's not necessarily breaking a clear command of God. They're just doing something and you and I are judging them for it and coming to the worst possible conclusion about them. Let me give you an example. This morning, uh, say you came in and you came in on time and we appreciate that. And, but you're a person, you always want to be on time, and you come into the house of God, and somebody comes in a little bit late. And they sit next to you, and you just kind of turn over, and you look at them, and you give them a nice welcoming smile. But then in your mind, you turn back, and as we begin to sing, you think they have no reverence for God or the house of God. <laughs> right? And so as you're thinking through it, this is the precise type of judging that God's talking about. There's two, there's two problems with what just happened. Number one is you're judging somebody based on your own set of judgments and laws, and it's not even based on the law of God. This is just your own. Uh, There is no law anywhere in the word of God that says you have to show up at church on time, and some of you know it, and some of you embrace that freedom every week. Not judging, just saying. It doesn't say anything about that. The second problem, though, with this is not just you're basing it on your own level of what is right and wrong, being the judge, but you're also condemning in, in determining the condition of the person's heart, saying they, they do not revere the, the house of God nor God based on them coming in late when you don't even know why they're late. That's the problem. The reason you might find out that the reason that they were actually late is because they stopped on the side of the road to be able to help a family that was in dire straits because they were broken down. And they ended up helping them to be able to demonstrate being a good neighbor and the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, the family that was broken down was the very family that you passed on your way to church because you revere God and his church so much. And so this is the type of critical judgment that I think that he's trying to get at. And let me give you another example. This is in Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And I think this is really going to drive it home in light of all that's been happening in the last year or so. He says this, he, he, he writes these words. He says, just this morning, my news feed blew up with bristling judgments against every Christian who has yet to publicly voice their outrage about the headline that dropped less than 24 hours ago. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Something happens and everybody on social media wants to know, are you for this or against it? And if you don't say something immediately in time, you're in big trouble. Okay, you, you, you're, you're not for justice, you're not loving, you're not caring, you don't care about sin in the world. This is what people judge about. He goes on to say, if you happen to be off grid or at grandma's house, then too bad. 
Your silence is deafening. You've been outed as the misanthrope that you are before a digital jury of millions. This is the type of critical, always thinking the worst judgmental attitude that God is, that Jesus Christ is condemning. I think it's more than this, but I think it's absolutely this that he is condemning. Now, let me give you three reasons why we are terrible at judging other people. I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, first, we are guilty of sin ourselves. We ourselves are sinful. I don't know this for sure. You can correct me later. Just don't, I, I didn't want to be corrected before the sermon because then I wouldn't have an illustration. So you can correct me afterwards. But it was told me that if you, you could be a convicted felon and once you serve your time, right, and, and, and do, do your time in prison, and once you are released, that you can actually go and be a lawyer and practice law after that. And not only that, but you can actually be, you can actually serve in the Senate, Look, you could be a crook and serve in the Senate. Look, that's amazing. I didn't try to, that's not judging. I didn't, I don't want you to go there. I'm just saying that, but you could, you could, or in the House of Representatives or whatever. But from what I could tell, at least from, (laughs) that's terrible. From what I've at least been told, that the one place that you can't serve is you cannot be a federal judge if you have been convicted of a felony. Now that might be wrong and that's, maybe that's the case, But I think it's true, and at least it makes sense. Why? Because a person who is breaking the law probably ought not to be in the place of judging and determining whether others are guilty of doing the same or not. And so the truth is, what the Bible teaches us is that we're all spiritual felons. Every single one of us. We have sinned more times than we could ever count or that we could ever imagine in more ways than we can ever imagine every day in our thoughts and our actions, and not only what we do, but because of what we don't do. That, and that and if we know what to do is right and we don't do what James says, it is to us accounted sin. So there's, so there's more than we can ever imagine that we are falling and, and doing. I think the truth is, is that if, 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 we, if, we weren't, if we didn't fall, we probably could then judge, right? In other words, if we had done the things that we had read about last week, if we had kept the commands of God to love our enemies and to do good to those that hate us and bless those that curse us and pray for those who abuse us, if we were to turn the other cheek when struck and give graciously to those who robbed us, then maybe you and I would be in a place of judgment, but we have not, so we then should not. And so I think maybe a classic example of this, or at least a clear picture of this, is found in John chapter 8 of being disqualified. Do you remember the story where Jesus um, is teaching and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, a group of Pharisees come and they all have stones in their hands and they come and they gr- drag a woman and they throw her before Jesus and they say, master, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. So it's not like people have said that she has or she admitted that she has. They caught her, went into a room somewhere, took her out in the very act of adultery. Now, the fact that they don't bring the man with them who was also guilty is letting you know that they're not really out for justice. Instead, they're out to get Jesus. So when they say to him, they say, they say to him, uh, Master, uh, the law says, law of Moses says, such a woman should be stoned. What do you say? It's all a trick. It was all a trick. Because what they know is, they say, if Jesus upholds, if Jesus says, no, listen, have mercy on her, don't, don't stone her, this is a terrible thing to do, well, then they've got him because now he's promoting people to disobey the law. But if Jesus in turn says, hey, no, let's go ahead and stone her, 
then everybody's going to go, this guy lacks compassion on the common folk. We don't want to have anything to do with him. And so no matter how he answers, they think that they've ultimately got him. So what does Jesus say? Well, at first he doesn't say anything. Instead, he's, he, you know the story. He bends down, he begins to write in the sand. And there's been so much written on what he actually wrote in that sand. And let's be honest, nobody knows. For 2,000 years, we've been speculating. Nobody knows exactly what he wrote in the sand because the Bible doesn't tell us. But there are some better guesstimations than others. One of the best, I think, and most fitting to the text is the fact that what he was writing in the sand is the names of those guys who were holding the stones. And there was writing the names. And besides there, little dash, and then he was writing all the sins that they were guilty of. Then when he got done, he gets up. And that might be right based on the response of the people when he says, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And each one begins to drop the stone, one at a time, one at a time, and they leave. What's in essence a part of that story? A part of that story is we as sinners make terrible judges. We make terrible judges. Number two, not only are, do we have sin or guilty of sin, but number two, we are blinded by our sin. Now, notice this, if you will, in verse 30, 39. This is what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, and he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, the idea is, can a blind man lead a blind man? Technically, yes, he can. But they're ultimately going to fall into a pit because one is not being able to guide the other person. That's the idea. Is, is if a person is full of sin, blinded of their own sin, then how in the world do they get to let somebody else and direct them in their own sin? And so he goes on, and he has this little phrase that seems a little bit confusing, but I think this is what he means. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. I think what he's saying there is he's saying there's only one real teacher. Who is that? The person of Jesus Christ. The rest of us are students, and we are trying to learn. We want to be like him. We want to judge like him. Here's the problem. We don't. And he says, so one day we will be like him when we're glorified in Christ Jesus. But for now, let there be the one leader. Let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And then notice this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the, the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? The reason we, all, we, we, we shouldn't put ourselves in a place of judgment is because we are so blinded of our own sin. How in the world can we rightly determine the sin of another person? That's what he, this is why we're bad judges. I think one of the great example, biblical examples of this is King David, a man after God's own heart. You know the story in the Old Testament where he gets steeping in sin, where he, he, he sees Bathsheba bathing up on a housetop and he, he begins to lust in his heart and he sends a servant, gets her, brings her back. He commits adultery with her. And what happens at this particular point, he wants this woman, even though he already has hundreds of wives, right? Why not one more? And so what, what does he do? He wants to cover his sin, but he wants her as his own. So he, he, he sends word to his generals to, to, to take his husband, take their husband Uriah, and put him out in the front lines of the battle and pull back and allow him to die. He does. He's, in essence, murdered. So David is an adulterer. He is a murderer. And God wants to confront him with his sin, so he takes his word to confront him. So the prophet Nathan comes to him, and 
Nathan begins to tell him a story. Now, now here's what you need to understand. The reason he's telling him the story, he's sharing a, like a case, a legal case with him because the king was the ultimate judge during the day. So people all day long would come and they would, they would tell them different cases and he would allow them to resolve it. Think Solomon with the two women who had a baby and they're trying to figure out which one is which. Same thing. So, so David thinks that Nathan is in essence just sharing him, him with another case that he knows. He's bringing a case and he's got a rule on it. And he says, you know, there were two men. One is very, very rich. He has, he has hundreds and even thousands of sheep. There's nothing that he wants that this man does not have. And he says, and there's a poor man, very poor man. He has only one sheep, just this small little ewe lamb. And he goes, and, and this ewe lamb, it's just a pet of the family. They love this little sheep. They, 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 they have it in the house at night. They sleep with it. They, they, they feed it from the scraps of the table. They love it dearly, but... This rich man who had so much decided to, by force, go into this other home with this man who had nothing and take the one thing that he had, they took it and he killed it and he, cook it, he cooked it and he ate it with his friends. And David is so outraged. He's so incredibly outraged that he says, this man must die, is what he says. And the Nathan, looking straight at him, says, you are that man. You are that man. Here's a man who was so guilty of such greater grievous sins of adultery and death, and he can't see it at all. But what he can see with crystal clarity is the sin, the lesser sin in the life of another, and he is righteously outraged by it. And this is oftentimes what happens in your heart and my heart. Isn't it amazing how we can, we can smell the faintest whiff of sin in the life of a spouse or a friend or a neighbor or an enemy when the whole time we're sitting on a toxic dump of our own completely oblivious to it? Completely oblivious to it. And here's, what's, here, here's what I think is true. I think the reason we're a- able to see it is because we know it. We know the sin ourselves. Be, be, we, we see it so clearly because we hate it in ourselves. Here's the problem. We just, we just think it looks worse on other people than it looks on us. And so the idea here is, is that, obviously we see it very clearly, is we're terrible judges. We're guilty ourselves. We're blinded to our own sin. And I think there's a third reason here. Third reason is this. Verse 37 um, Oh, sorry, the third reason is this, is that we will be rewarded for our sin. This is why you really don't want to have anything to do with judging. Verse 37, he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and it will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured again to you. So Jesus has in mind uh, these, these sp- uh, spiritual law in mind, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. Let me explain. When God created the universe, he put certain laws in place to keep the universe moving, okay? And these laws cannot be broken except by God himself. When he chooses to break them, that's what we call miracles, all right? So everything happens a certain way over and over and over again. Why? Because it's a natural law. One of those natural laws would be the law of gravity. If you go up on a high building and you look over the rail and you go, oh, I got to step back. This is fearful. There's a reason for that. It's because you know the law of gravity. 
you know that if you fall over that ledge, you will fall to the ground and you will die. Yes? It's not a 50-50. It's not like, well, if I go, I might just hover. I might just hover over to the side. So I'm not real scared of this. No, no. You know the law of nature is that you're going to fall because of gravity and it's going to be very, very painful. Maybe. And so you're going to fall. And so you understand that. Well, we have these natural laws, but sometimes they fall into the spiritual laws of life as well. For example, one of those physical laws is the law of sowing and reaping. So if you sow corn, you get what? Watermelon? No, you get corn. So it's, it's like for like. If you, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap. You guys are so interactive. You're so helpful. Thank you. And so... It's like I'm working up here. And so, yeah, and so this is, a, this is the law. But they also convey, God lets us know here in several other passages, that this goes beyond the physical and goes on to the spiritual as well. It's a like for like. What you sow is what you're ultimately going to reap. And he says, if you, if you sow and if you're critical and if you judge harshly, guess what? You're going to receive harsh judgment. If you, are, if you are sowing condemnation, that you are going to receive harsh condemnation. Now it's hard. Here's what's difficult here is I don't really know whether he's talking about in this life or the life to come. Is he talking about that if you're a critical person here, then you're going to find other people being extraordinarily critical toward you? And I think the answer to that is yes. Think about somebody that you know is overly critical. You're being critical by determining who's overly critical. But you know what I'm talking about. This is a messed up thing, all right? And so the idea is you just know somebody that goes around and they are just, they're a sin sniffer about everything. What happens to everybody around them? They begin to look for an opportunity for that person to fall because they want them to fall hard. And when they do, everybody laughs and has a good time when they do. That's what he means by if you're sowing something, you're going to reap something. But I think it also has to do with the world to come. I think what he's trying to let us know is that true believers in Jesus Christ and act mercy because they've received mercy, if they don't and they're constantly harshly judgmental, judging them based on their, even on their own laws and then condemning them and thinking the absolute worst of them, it's probably a demonstration that they've never been converted to begin with. They've never been saved to begin with. So the, uh, so the one is true. That's the negative, but then there's the positive. He also sits there and says, but here's the good thing, and this should encourage us not to place ourselves in the place of judgment or as judges of, of others. He says, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you give, you will receive in the same measure. That's what that whole press down, shake it together, running over thing is, in the same measure. It's, it's exactly the same. How much you give in is exactly how much you're going to get out. So the idea is it should be telling us, hey, I don't want to be judged. I don't want this judgment to come my way, neither by man nor by God. I need to lay off this, be gracious, be merciful, be giving, and be forgiving because truly that's what I ultimately want. So what do we do with this? Let me give you a couple points of conclusion and we'll, we'll close here. How do we apply this command to judge, not to judge or condemn? Let me, let me give you three points here. First, we are not to judge or condemn the world. Did you know that? Did you know that you and I are not here and expl- explicit? we are commanded not to judge the world itself, but yet that's what so many Christians, especially in this time and age, are doing. They're judging the world over and over and over again. Do you remember the story that I told you about when they bring the woman before Jesus and they sit there and at the end he says, he says, you who have no sin, cast the first stone, right? And what happens? They all walk away, but that's not the end of the story. 
Do you remember the end of the story? It's more extraordinary than that. She says, who is it that condemns you? She responds, no one, sir. Jesus, who has the right to judge, says what? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no, wor- sin no more. You say, well, why didn't he condemn them? Well, here's the reason why. We look over in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right? We know John 3, 16. It used to be the most well-known verse in the Bible until Luke and Matthew came along with judge not lest you be judged. But do you remember it? For God so loved the world. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, Nick at night, the first Nick at night. He comes and he's talking with him and, and, and he's talking about salvation and all these things. And he finally says to him, he says, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Then verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Do you know why he didn't come in the world to judge and condemn the world? Because a lost and dying world is already judged and condemned. The biggest problem that I see with the church, and this is gonna be misunderstood, and people are gonna get angry at this, line up, happens every week, I'm used to it now, but here's what happens. Many believers believe that their job right now in this day and time is to let all the world know how sinful they are, how disgusting they are, and how angry they are at them for being so sinful. And it's not even a role. It's not even a role. Many of them already know because of their conscience, which God has placed within them, already know that they are condemned before God. It's why they don't want to hear anything. It's why they want to remove themselves from the truth of God's word. And they don't even want to be around Christians because of the testimony. Even that can make them feel ashamed. Our job, you're in my job. Now, a person can't come to faith unless they recognize them to be a sinner fully. Would you, you, you admit that? We, we recognize that. But our primary job is to let people know that they are underneath the condemnation of God, that we're not judging them. They are already condemned but there is a way for them to get out and escape that condemnation. That's our role as believers in Jesus Christ. I just see believers right now, they seem to be so puffed up with pride going, this world is sinful! Yeah, the world is sinful. It always has been, ever since the fall. It's completely saturated with sin. And listen, it is no more saturated with sin today than it has been in any other period of history. It is lost is lost. Sin is sin. It's awful. You can be grieved. We've talked about all of this. But our job in in, in dressing believers is not to come across as a bunch of angry, disgusted, repulsed people because of who they are and what they've done. Nobody is a great witness for that. But rather to be able to sit there and say, brother, I'm not condemning you. The Bible says you are already condemned by his word. Let me show you the way of escape. Number two, we are to judge our brothers and sisters in love, in love. So let me read this one scripture just in case you say, no, we're supposed to judge, judge the world. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? The answer is Nothing. I don't, I, I, I don't have a role in that. That's not me to judge them. He says, however, listen to this. 
He goes, is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? We're to judge each other. There is an element of that. Now, that's scary, right? That's why folks don't want to come to church. It's, it's why they're like, whoa, we're gonna, wait, this is, we're supposed to be judging each other, but how are we supposed to be judging each other graciously, lovingly, caringly? What we mean by that judge is if we see another brother in sin, what do we do? We go to them because we love them and we see what they're doing is going to destroy them, other people in themselves, and we don't want them to destroy them. What, it's all underneath the umbrella of what? Of love. Brother, if you continue that sin, you're either going to demonstrate that you are either not in the faith or you are going to be disciplined harshly by God. I don't want that either way for you. When God's telling you no, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. He loves you too much. Don't continue down this path. You're pleading. It's not a judgmental way. It's pleading for the repentance of that person. It's when you and I begin to sit there and go, bro, you know, you got a real problem, don't you? That's the attitude. That, that's it. That's that harshness, that, that condemning. And what does he say the whole time? The reason oftentimes that we're even seeing it is because it's so evident in our own life. And so we are to be able to go to each other. We are to be able to express love. And one of the reasons we're supposed to do it is because the church needs to remain pure to be able to show a lost and dying world of what it looks like to live underneath the direction and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's for the sake of the witness of that church to remain pure. And that's what we want to be able to do. There's a third application of this. And here's the thing is we are to begin by judging ourselves first. That's where we're to begin. That's where it always begins. And I think this is what's in mind in Luke chapter six, verse 42. He says, you hypocrite. So again, it can't be that he's talking about every type of judgment. One type of judgment is this just snarky, critical, thinking the worst of everybody around you and condemning them. The other is uh, hypocritical judgments. Judging people for the same things that you and I are ultimately guilty of. That's what he's condemning. So look at this. He says, verse 6, verse 42, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You know the one command that is so clear about what we should judge in the Bible, in all the Bible, is to judge ourselves, but it's the one command that we really don't like so much. All the way through the Bible, we have commands beginning in Lamentations uh, 340. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1131. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So what does that mean? How do we, how do we judge ourselves? Brother, it's impossible for you, brothers and sisters, it's impossible for you and I to really be aware of sin unless we are in God's word and being walking by his spirit. If you and I are not in the word, which serves as a mirror, James tells us, which reflects and tells us exactly what is there, you will forever think that you are something. But the moment that you and I find ourselves in the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our life, it continues to illuminate stuff. Have you ever read the word of God? Sometimes I read the word of God and I push back from my table and I go, what a mighty God we serve. Sometimes I'm in there and I'm studying and I push it away and I go, what a wretched sinner I am. It's that dichotomy that we're always going through. Yes, I'm a wretched sinner, but what a mighty God he is. But it has to begin with 
us with ourselves. And we do that through the word of God, allowing it to speak to us, allowing the Holy Spirit to work, allowing other brothers and sisters to come. And instead of becoming defensive immediately, to listen what their complaint is about us and say, God, search my heart to see if there be any wicked way in me. Good chances is there will be. So it's when we are really walking with the Lord, then you and I are able to go to a brother and sister in Christ, in love, and say, brother, I've, I'm, I'm cautious of even coming to you. I know that I struggle with this as well. But this is a sin that is continually being shown in your life. I don't even know if you're aware of it or not. And I ask you as a brother and sister in Christ to just listen and to understand that this is not honoring to God I want to help you and come alongside of you, and maybe we can help each other to overcome this particular sin together. That's maybe an application of what he's calling about here. One, one author writes this. He says, all this is, the, is, is underneath, underneath the idea of love, the umbrella of love from the beginning. Love your enemies. Do you remember that? Love your enemies. How? By extending mercy to one another. How do we extend it? We talked about a bunch of ways before. Now how do we do it? By in the way we judge. That's how we demonstrate mercy and love. And he says, love marks the true Christian. To be indifferent towards sin of our fellow church members is decisively, decisively unloving. But so is having an angry, critical spirit towards the outside, the, those that are outside of the faith. In love, we are to call our believer, believing brothers and sisters to repentance. In love, we are to display patience with unbelievers. And in love, we are to pursue personal holiness first and foremost. I praise God that he did not condemn us, that every moment that I breathe, that God had an opportunity to be able to judge and to be able to condemn. But in his great love, he showed mercy. One of the greatest aspects and demonstration of a church ought to be the mercy that we bestow. And the way that we do that is in the way we choose and are commanded to judge and not to judge. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we love you. God, I pray that this has helped to clarify and help us to understand a little bit more about what this command both means and what it doesn't mean. God, I, I pray that you would lead us, you would move our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. God, I, I wonder if there are some folks here that, Lord, they're just, I don't know why I wanna pray this, but I just wonder if there are people here that, Lord, so much of the word that is being preached is just falling on deaf ears. Lord, really, their, their whole life, they don't really even have a personal relationship with you. Again, it's not me to judge. It's for them to be able to judge their own hearts, to see if they are truly in the faith. That much of what's being said, that maybe it's just, it's just like, like, like a tennis ball of a brick wall. Just nothing's happening. Nothing's moving them. Nothing's challenging them. Nothing. God, I just pray, Lord, for them. God, would you save their soul today? Would you save their heart? Would you let them know that this is not about a bunch of religiosity and just going through the motions, but this is about a white hot personal relationship with you, with Jesus Christ as your disciple, seeking to follow you and glorifying you in all ways. God, let that be our intent. Let that be what you've called us to. God, for many of us that there, there are literally husbands and wives sitting next to each other and some are praying, dear Jesus, please let my husband hear this. God, please let my wife hear this or please let my mom and dad hear this. Because sir and ma'am, you may just have such a critical spirit about you, always thinking the worst of everybody else. And it's not the heart that God wants us to have. 
We need to repent of that and turn from that. But most of all, we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with ourselves and say, God, search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And I promise you, he'll honor it. There's never been a time that I've ever prayed that prayer in sincerity and God has not shown me clearly all that is wrong, or at least some of what is wrong in my heart. Lord, let us pray and let us do all things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you want to know more,